Hello, everybody. Five Star Podcast, a podcast from two dudes that always play 2K and sometimes watch movies. I'm Ryan Hurley. I'm Sam Wolfcool. And uh, we're here today to talk to you guys about two films, uh, as promised. Uh, do you want to tell the, the good people what we're going to be talking about today, Wolf? Uh, we're going to be talking about the Netflix original all day and a night, and we're going to talk about the 1946 classic, The Big Sleep. Absolutely. I can't wait to get to it, but uh, before that, I want to ask you, Wolf, what is the last great thing you watched? What is your favorite thing that you rated on Letterboxd in the past week? Um, ooh, I watched, I forget what year it's from, but I watched Dog Day Afternoon with uh-huh. Al Pacino. And uh, that was a great movie. Really, uh, I don't. I haven't seen a lot of Pacino's early work, so I just kind of picture him as like a guy who's just like out of his mind in every single role. Mm-hmm. So this was really, really nice to see him, like subdued and just a great actor, like a really yeah. great actor. Yeah, it's good to see him before his like ooh phase, you know, and like yeah. uh, heat. That's kind of what he's doing. I, as much as oh. I love Heat, but like he's really hamming it up in that too, so it's always good to see like watch like Give that. Give me all you got. Yeah. <laughs> you got your, uh, she's got a great ass, and you got your head way up in it. Oh <laughs> my god, he is. So. There's like a there's like a piece of trivia in that movie where apparently one of the early um, like scripts had him have like a coke addiction in the movie. But they wrote that part out, but like he had already filmed the part, so they just kept it in. <laughs> it only works, honestly. It, it even if they don't have it uh, explicitly said, it does. Yeah. yeah, it does. It does seem like a coke addiction for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the last we- great thing that I watched here on my letterbox uh, in in preparation for this. Um, I watched a couple of films that I liked. First of all, I, I watched uh, Murder on the Orient Express from 1973, oh. I believe. So there's some more, Lauren Bacall as well. Much much older than this movie, um, but she's in there. And then uh, last night, I also watched uh, the Long Good Friday or the Long Goodbye. Whoops, yeah, which is another noir movie based off of um, a Raymond Chandler novel starring the character of Philip Marlowe, uh, this time played by Elliot Gould from... That's amazing. Yeah, very uh, very different than Humphrey Bogart, but uh, still great. It's, uh, it's a very, very weird movie, but I, I really enjoyed it. I, uh, I watched a movie... I watched a lot of Netflix movies this past weekend, and... Uh... There's this one with the girl from Riverdale, Camila Mendez, where it's basically like a knives out, like ripoff. And Elliot Gould <clears throat> plays like the old man who like dies and has a bunch of money. And it's like, man, you go from like Ocean's Eleven, where he's one of the main guys, to like Monica's dad. Well, he's Monica's dad before all that. Yeah. It's like, there's not a lot of great roles for older actors. Yeah, it's a little bit sad, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. He's sort of, he's really 
really weird too. Like I, I love him, but he is like a very he doesn't uh, seem like a like a, a character actor that fits in a lot of modern movies because he's really like distinct in the way he like behaves. So that's kind of sad to think about too. Yeah, you know what? He does his best. At least he's making some money. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? He's had a good career up to this point, right? He definitely has had a, a long, good career. Should we dive straight yeah. into a quick question? Let's do All it. Right. All right, so this is a new segment. Start of every show, we're going to have a, a weird question. I always got weird questions running through my mind, so this will be easy for us. <laughs> so this week, it, this question is in honor of me going through and catching up on every Marvel movie that I missed. So my question is, would Saoirse Ronan, the wonderful actress of Brooklyn fame, Atonement, Lady Bird, Little Woman, just a wonderful actress, definitely, definitely the favorite of ours, would she be a better Marvel hero or would she be a better villain of one of the movies? So I think that she would be a better hero. Um, Do you want... Do you want to say your answer? Or do you want me to go on on for why no, I, first? I want to hear why. So, I think Marvel, as a, other than Thanos and and Loki, to a lesser extent, uh, has not really had great great villains uh, traditionally, and normally they're only around for about a movie. So, if I want if I want Sersha in in the Marvel universe. I want as much Saoirse as I can get that I want her doing the things that she's great at the most. So therefore I would think I would have to go with hero, even though I think it would be fun to see her play a villain in a, in a movie at some point. I think I'd like her to be a villain because I think of like, I I guess the two movies that come to mind first would be something like Ant-Man where Ant-Man has Paul Rudd, and he's written very well, and he's Paul Rudd, so he acts it very well. But then the villain is just kind of hard to follow. It's they're just going to some like random place to get something. Like I never understood what Ant Man was doing because the villain wasn't really that villainy. But then you have a movie yeah. like um, Thor Ragnarok, where Kate Blanchett is playing Hela, and again, she's not written that well. She doesn't have a lot to do in that movie. She just is like, you see her power but you never like actually see her do anything. And I feel like it works better with Kate Blanchett being a villain because she's such a good actress. So you put Saoirse Ronan in there going up against like one of these Marvel heroes. You don't really have to write her that well. You don't really have to like give her a lot to do, but she'll just like be so much better in that role than some of these like no name villains are. And I think she would really thrive. Like I feel like she doesn't get to have a lot of fun in her roles. And I think this could be a little time for her to like kind of show that she's like really actually pretty like she's really she's got a super deadpan humor. I've seen her on like in interviews. And I think it would be fun to see her like be the villain and just kind of get to go up against some of these like movie stars. Yeah. And I think I think people now are really familiar with her for like Lady Bird and and Little Women, where she's really playing like I guess Lady Bird, she's a little bit more of a flawed character, but they're basically the hero of both of those stories. So it would be nice to kind of see like a little change of pace. And that would be a fun way for everybody to sort of see it. Yeah. And if she did get good material as the villain, she would be able to really play it up and have a lot of fun, like you said, which 
would be Breath of Fresh Air too, because as much as I, as much as it seems like she's having fun in like Little Women, it's a little bit different, like doing a period piece versus like you know some other things where you can really ham it up. Like everything she's in is so, like it's taking itself seriously, which isn't a bad thing. It just like shows mm-hmm. like how good she is that she's like able to like really be a force in these movies. But I think it'd be cool for her to get to like chew on the scenery a little bit, just like. Like, Kate Blanchett was having a blast in her, like, little bit of screen time as hella. Like, you could just yeah. see her, like, really feeling herself, and I think Saoirse could do something like that. And she's got the accent, and I feel like an accent works really well yeah. with a villain. That's true. That's true. Maybe she could use, like, her natural Irish accent yeah. even as the villain. That'd be but awesome. I'd love to see that. <laughs> she's in a movie this year. I can't think of the name of it, but it's her and Kate Winslet playing lesbian lovers. So that should be pretty good. If it comes, if it comes, still is slated to come out this year. That True. I feel like it's definitely got to be in the Oscar, Oscar contention. Definitely. All right, that's a good question. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, I like it. We'll keep doing that segment for sure. Should we dive okay. into our talk of the Netflix film all day and a night? Let's do it. Let's do it. Take it away. <laughs> so, in summary, according to IMDb. It's about a young man who committed. Is this really what it says? This isn't proper English. It says a young man yeah. who committed a homicide deals with the repercussions of his action. That really, that reads yeah. tough. I'll be honest, that reads tough. I feel like it's not 100. Once again, I feel like it's not maybe 100% accurate to what's really going on. <laughs> no, this doesn't, this doesn't fully let you in on what you're putting yourself into. Yeah, this is a really, really somber movie. Yeah. Yeah. It was tough. Yeah. So basically, it focuses on this, like, young man, probably, like, 19 or 20? Ashton Sanders, who, like, grows up in a life where his, like, dad beats him. He grows up in a life of crime. Like, he, like, you get, like, they don't actually, like, show any of it. Actually, they kind of show some of it. You can, like, he has, like, already has a record going. For a bunch of different things and like within the movie like the movie jumps from all sorts of different times of his life from like when he's like really young to like when he's in like grade school to like right before he finds himself killing someone to like the point where after he's killed someone he's in jail and it just kind of shows like his life and how he ended up in jail but like that movie's been done a million times but the real like perk of this movie is he goes to jail and there's his dad yeah, yeah. So he played by goes Jeffrey to jail. Wright. Jeffrey Wright. So he goes to jail with his dad, and it just kind of shows that, like, I think the whole point of the movie is to show that, like, this kid never really had a chance mm-hmm. in life to be anything but what his father was, and now he's hoping for the best for his son. But I feel like he wasn't making the proper steps. Yeah the the movie the movie is definitely trying to be that, and is not always effective in in being that. I guess, you know, like, uh, and it's just really, it's hard to, so I know we've heard a lot about like how Netflix movies are really paced weird in order to keep people's attention. And this is like the anti version of that because there's (laughs) not a whole lot there to really keep your attention, you know, like I would find myself zoning out for, for minutes on end. And then I, there would be a gunshot, and I kind of like 
snap out of it and have to rewind 10 seconds just to yep. see who got shot, you know? I did that too. The one scene that really got me, like, paying attention to the screen, this is actually, like, a really good – this is a well – this was a good scene. It was the scene where uh, Ashton Sanders and then whoever plays TQ and then uh, Ashton Sanders' character's baby mama were, like, going to that party – and I, I I don't know the technical term for it, but I'm pretty sure they were doing a tracking shot in mm-hmm. that scene. Like they just they basically just showed them going to this outdoor party in Oakland, kind of giving you like a lay of the land of the landscape of like what a party is like in Oakland, like in the streets. But there was the just aggravating voiceover going on that whole yeah. time that really took me fully out of the scene. The moment anyone starts talking over a scene, I'm just kind of like, all right, I, I guess I don't have to watch the scene. He's gonna explain it to me. But they like, they show you the whole entire party, and then they meet Yaya Abdul Mateen, who gave a really nice performance in his five scenes that he was in. And it was just like a good scene. It like showed you a little more about the landscape as opposed to just like, here's Ashton Sanders not saying anything and being mad about the world. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually like a refreshing scene because you saw how like wide, widespread the problem is as yeah. opposed to like, you know, most of the other scenes are either like him as a kid beating him as a kid getting beat up by Jeffrey Wright, his his dad who looks like Ice T, uh, him rapping over like and, and making not good songs that I'm like not sure if the movie wants us to think are good songs. Yeah, I don't know that. Like, I don't know. Like the scene where he's showing it to the rapper that looks like Rick Ross, and yeah, T Rex, T Rex, yeah, and he's like, nah, I just can't vibe with it or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, you got I another track, yeah, and he's so surprised. He's like, what? I my favorite part of that scene, besides actually, my favorite part was definitely T Rex just being like mean to him. But like the best part of that scene to me was the music starts playing and unless you have subtitles on or you're like actually listening to the movie, you don't realize that's his song. And he just starts like bumping and like rapping along and everyone else is just sitting there like, yeah, this is great. Yeah. They're like, what is this going up on SoundCloud? Uh... <laughs> I'm getting there, man. I'm getting there. <laughs> I just need those views on my YouTube videos. <laughs> um, yeah, it wasn't. It was just a tough movie. It was super slow, not a great story. It was nonlinear. That the nonlinear plot ruined it for me. Just like a good nonlinear plot to me has like two storylines you're jumping between. Like <laughs> Little Woman, I keep coming back to that. They had two distinct storylines, and that was like easy to follow because it just changed the color of the screen, and you're like, okay, here we are. But in this movie, they had like six, and that was too many. Yeah, I think this this movie. Um, in a way, like it was, it kind of was making me think of like, um, either the book Catch 22 or, um, the, the movie Love and Mercy about Brian Wilson. I don't think either of those, these two things were an influence on the movie in, in any sort of way, but just kind of like the way the movie was structured because both of those hop around in time a lot, but they're a lot more effective because you see how like the character situations kind of drives them crazy and then drives them to like the decisions they make at the end of the movie. Whereas like this, it's like, you see what he does at the end of the movie in the beginning. So then like 
you're flashing forward to him in prison. You're not questioning why he's in there. You're flashing back and you're seeing all these brutal things happen. But then you're basically seeing these brutal things happen anyway when he's a teenager. So you're just kind of like, you're watching all this and you're just like, I, I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> you know? No. The one thing that really bugged me, probably the most about the nonlinear plotline was I was noticing that whenever they would like flash back to like present day of him in jail, it almost seemed like he was like adding characteristics about himself that we learned from the most recent flashback. So like, like he was kind of like a wimpy kid when he first got to jail. And then we see this flashback where he's like kind of a badass. And then the next scene when he's back in jail, he's like, like, he's just like, he's like walking around like he owns the place. And I'm like, no, no, no. The last time we saw him in jail, he was scared of his own skin. Yeah. Like, we gotta, like, you can't, like, that, you're ruining the whole point of the nonlinear plot by doing that. Yeah, exactly. Like, you should, uh, it should be the opposite way, where you're seeing these characteristics in him when he's in the jail, and then you should see how he changes to that, like, throughout the movie, but you just don't. And, like... No. Also, Ashton Sanders, that that's his lead, right? Ashton Sanders? Yeah. I... I don't. Was he doing like some affect on his voice or something to like make it deeper to seem tougher? Or I don't remember him like speaking like that or what in Moonlight. But like, I just didn't uh, buy him as somebody that was supposed to be like this badass. You know, like no, dude's a twig. No, he was. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it wasn't. I don't think the role was built for him. But I, I think he did his best with what he was given. Yeah, that's true. That's all I got on that. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely was mumbling. Yeah, he really, like, he he had a character that, you know, I don't, I don't envy him for having to play it because that there wasn't a whole lot to him. So he didn't maybe have a whole lot to work with there. No, not at all. Would you recommend it? Uh, it's going to be a no for me on that. <laughs> No, it, it's not that the movie was, like, dreadful. Like, I gave it, like, two and a half out of five. I just don't think anyone should take two hours to hate themselves. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not going to make you mad with how, like, how with the ways it doesn't work. It's just kind of going to bore you until until you hear, like, gunfire, basically. Also, I'm like, I'm mad at myself because I picked this movie for us to watch this week because I figured it was going to be very well seen given the cast was full of some names that were pretty famous. It's uh, one of the writers of Black Panther directed it. But then, according to Letterboxd, not even a thousand people watched it on Letterboxd. And 32,000 people watched the high school movie, the half of it, which is genuinely a very good movie. So, messed up. That's on me. I figured the name brand of the people part of it would work. No, that's okay. And you know what? At least we're giving like shine to a movie that is. I, I believe the writer director is black, and the the cast is mainly black, or at least not yeah. white. So at least it's a little bit more diverse than the yeah. you know talking about a high school movie. So at least at least yeah. that's a good thing thing about it. The high school movie was very good. It was a. Uh, it was a. It was about this uh, girl. It was just—it was about this girl who was like helping this guy, and they were trying to like trying to help this guy like write letters up to like this girl to get this other girl to like the guy, 
but then it turns out both the girl who was helping write the letters was falling for the same girl. So it's like oh. a good like LGBTQ movie. Yeah, and it sounds like it would it probably moves a lot more than than this movie, which works a lot better for Netflix. Yeah, and it slows down at points where it like needs to. It's a it's a good movie. I think it's it, it's getting a lot of like a lot of love, and I think it's pretty well deserved. Good, good. It's always good to hear if those Netflix films. They miss sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes spectacularly. <laughs> Should we move on to our movie that we watched this week? Movie Club. Movie Club. As we mentioned before, um, we did the 1946 classic, The Big Sleep. Two classics in a row here, Wolf. <laughs> Just wait till our swap. You got another classic coming. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. I think we're we're doing a swap for next week, right? Yes, I'm so excited. I I have a, I'm excited about my recommendation for you. I'm definitely going to be rewatching it. Um, but so oh, I'm rewatching mine too. Yeah, absolutely. But so let's get into the big sleep here. So the summary from IMDb. Um, is that private detective Philip Marlowe is hired by a rich family. Uh, before the complex case is over, he's seen murder, blackmail, and what might be love. Wolf, did you... That works. It, it is actually accurate, this one, this summary. That works. It, it's, a compl- it's a very, very complex case. I was going to say... Plenty of murder, plenty of blackmail, and... Another love story of people 25 years apart. <laughs> yeah, true, true. <laughs> Emphasis on complex. That's what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> did you have any like familiarity with this uh, movie before before we watched it? I I've heard of it, and that was it. Like I lit- I genuinely didn't know the first thing about it, except I'd, I'd heard of it. Okay. Yeah, because I I, fe- I feel like that's going to be a good thing to bring up early on here before we really discuss it in full because like I I had read the book so I was sort of familiar with what was going to happen enough if there's some changes and things like that and um, I already liked the character of Marlo so I kind of knew a little bit more of what to expect going in if that if that makes sense um, so what did you think generally about the about the movie I think I genuinely, I have it written down right here. I spent the first 75 minutes of like the 113 minute movie, like really trying to follow the plot. Mm -hmm. Like I was like listening really close. I was like looking stuff up on Wikipedia. Like I was like trying to like catch up to where I was in the movie on the summary being like, okay, so this person's dead and this person is this person. And I was like, I don't, I don't even know what's going on. Yeah. But then finally, I just like kind of succumbed to the fact that I didn't know what was going on. And even though I thought the movie was like a little, a little talky at points, just like people just like talking to each other for over and over and over again, I really did like. I loved Humphrey Bogart's character. Yeah, he's great. I love Marlo. Marlo was, he was witty. He was hilarious. I loved uh, Martha Vickers' character of Cam. I think she played Carmen Sternwood. Mm-hmm. I liked the general when he was on the screen for the little bit he was. He was hilarious. And then I like I, I think Lauren Bacall's character of uh, of uh, Vivian Rutledge was uh, – I loved how she was always everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere Marlo went, there's Vivian Rutledge. 
Yeah, she's really great. I liked it. I, I would recommend it. Yeah, I definitely would. I mean, I definitely would recommend it too. As I, as I mentioned last week, I've been I've been watching like a lot of these noirs, uh, thanks to the Criterion Collection. I've been I've been watching some there, so I was excited to see this because I hadn't seen it before. And yeah, I I really loved it. Um, and it is it is super complex. And uh, I think because I had read the book, I knew that the important thing going in was going to be listening to the way that like Marlowe interacts with the people and the ways that, in which like he's lying to them and then what little bits of information he kind of pieces along to get other people to tell him the information he needs to like paint the full picture. I always found that really interesting in any scene. Like, like for instance, just the fact that like he, even in just in that first scene, um, he comes in and he doesn't tell Carmen his actual name. And then he won't tell the general um, what his association is with Joe Reed. Right? That's his name. It's Regan. I know it's his last name. And then when he meets Mrs. Rutledge. Sean Regan. Sean Regan. That's what it is. And then um, when he meets Mrs. Rutledge, he won't tell her why he's actually been hired. So like just watching him play every single person off of each other in the scene is just really fun. And that that's that was my favorite part of the movie is just kind of watching him. He's not quite like Sherlock Holmes where he's like, you know, hopping in at the end and and like unfurling the whole case for you, but he's just like a master at like playing people off of each other. Um which I really loved. Yeah. And then did you enjoy that everyone was into him? <laughs> I thought that was funny. That was uh, definitely an addition from the book, or an addition uh, that was not in the book. <laughs> or at least I didn't think so. I felt like people in the book normally were more like sarcastic to him. Uh, and we'll, I, I'll actually touch on that a little bit in the trivia once we get to it. And then I, I did want to uh, add just a little excerpt from, from Wikipedia that I found about, about the complicated plot. So there was a pre-release of this in 1945, and um, this pre-release had a long scene between Marlowe and the Los Angeles District Attorney where he basically laid everything out um, and kind of told all the details of the plot. And then eventually this was taken out once they did a full release in 1946. Um, I think that's the version that we watched and that's normally the most, most disseminated because people sort of like the relationship between Mrs. Rutledge and, uh, Marlowe more than they like actually, I guess, following the story, or at least the fans, the fans of this film traditionally. <laughs> Should we get... Yeah, it, it, it puts it into perspective a little bit because it, even I was sitting there and I was like trying to recall what I knew from the book and I was like, wait, I can't, I don't know. I, I yeah, Even I was having a hard time making connections. No clue. No clue. It's like, all right, yeah. <laughs> Marlo's pulling, Marlo's taking yet another. Yeah, exactly. Over. It took me like three, three <laughs> scenes to realize who Eddie Mars was. <laughs> And I was like, wait a minute. Oh, that's him. I couldn't I didn't realize the Geiger guy was dead like yeah, immediately. Yeah. 
it's I. I, I <laughs> were you a little bit frustrated by the like opaqueness of the story, or just how many people were in 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 the story? I guess I just kept getting confused why like Vivian was everywhere. Like she suddenly they would go somewhere and there she is. And I was like, where, where are we again? Why is she here? Whose house is this? He's tied up again. Like I was just like, I definitely got confused and frustrated, but like near the end, I was just like, eh, yeah, whatever. Let's just, let's just sit here and roll yeah, with exactly. It. And it is, it is frustrating sometimes to like, be, cause I think, I think they added some scenes with, with, um, this is Rutledge. I, I can't I can't remember exactly from the book, but I felt like she wasn't in it as much as she is in the movie. Um, but so like it, it is weird when she's just like popping up everywhere, and you're like, what? What is she doing here? And then you basically learn that like she just is connected to all of this in a way, mm-hmm. which I, I which is certainly a trope of, of noir, and I and I liked in the. Uh, in this movie too. Yeah. I also see that you put you like like that there are a lot of guns and, and witty jokes. <laughs> That's a... a lot of guns. A lot of. I just loved him just like taking guns from everybody. I also like the scene where they like are leaving the casino and he just like goes to a car. Is it his car? And suddenly he just like pulls down some. Yeah. multiple guns from underneath the uh like glove com- glove compartment and i'm like all I was right like damn another gun he takes sort of james bond ask i i yeah bogey what well, why wasn't humphrey bogart ever james bond i maybe because he's american i'm not sure hmm and he's and he's small. He kept getting height shamed. You can really tell that he's small too when, when you see like at the end when him and Lauren Bracall are like walking in and she's like a little bit taller than him. And I'm like, Oh, she must be in heels and then I see the next shot and I'm like, Oh, she's not <laughs> I think they put him in heels <laughs> he's a lot in of lifts. the movie. He gets the end. Yeah, he's oh in love. God, I didn't know that. That's hilarious. Yeah. I think that's why they, that's what IMDb said. That's why they kept making fun of him because he had to like put lifts in his shoes. That's why they, they were just like consistently. They should have given her, or... given him the Tom Cruise treatment and like put her in a trench so that he looked taller on camera. <laughs> I love small. It, it cracks me up every time I hear it. So, should we go into who's in this thing? I know we've talked a little bit. Yeah. So, of course, it's starring uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Um, I think our sort of shared familiarity with Humphrey Bogart is mostly in Casablanca, right? Casablanca? Yeah, definitely. Is this the second movie you've seen him in? That I, that I know of. I think it's just this in Casablanca. Casab- Casablanca. I don't know. Casablanca. Close enough. I think it's just those two. I like him. I want to watch more of him mm-hmm. for sure. Like yeah. Those. Yeah. He's great at his like growly voice is great when he's delivering uh, 
like a one-liner or it's, <laughs> it's you know he's delivering a verbal jab to people yeah I've, i think this is the fourth movie i've seen him in um and yeah i i, I really love him i know i know i've probably talked about it before with you but yeah he's great on screen every every time he comes into a scene it just i'm always like glued into what he's saying he's great <laughs> And then, Definitely. of course, uh, he, we've already mentioned her as well, but Laura Bacall is the female lead in this, the femme fatale. Um, do you have a favorite Lauren Bacall role? Cool. Have you I seen, have Misery? seen Misery? Wow. She plays the old I, woman I in that movie. I didn't realize that was her. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. That's, it's so different than this. She's just like, funny in that movie. She's so funny. Her and the old man in that movie are hilarious. Oh my god. I gotta go back and rewatch Misery. Oh my god. Oh, that's a great choice. Uh, I love Misery. Uh, Misery is such James a good Conn movie. James Conn and um, Kathy Bates in that movie are, are fantastic too. Oh, man. Maybe that'll be a movie swap one time or something. <laughs> oh. That, when that I've I'd only ever seen the episode of Family Guy where they like make fun of three of his uh three of Stephen <laughs> King's movies. And I was always like, Man, this misery movie sounds like interesting. So we like we watched it the moment it came to Hulu. And it was so good. Yeah. You it sort was... of are used to hearing about like I feel like mostly with that movie, people just talk about like the scene where she like breaks his ankles. But oh, god! Yeah, that was terrible. That hurts. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh. Kathy Bates was like built for that role, and then she just kind of, she does a little bit of everything. But she was so, yeah, so, she's so perfect. good for that I'm, role. I'm glad that movie. I think that was a real like breakout movie. I'm glad that's given us Kathy Bates now. Ever since. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So I have a I have a question here for you. Would you so so we've I've told you we like we both love Casablanca. Do you think who is a better on screen duo? Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart or Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart? I think for me, wow, a better on screen duo? Wow. I think on screen, I think I preferred Bergman and Bogey. I just think they actually had like they had a little bit more of a story while in this movie it was kind of more like a bunch of witty jokes mm-hmm. and then they would be like making out in the car and then she's like, I want more kisses and he's like, <laughs> I want you not to lie to me. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely see that. I I know that I don't know how many movies Humphrey Bogart made with Ingrid Bergman. But I do know that this is the second of four that he made with Lauren Bacall. So I'd like to see, I would like to see how their sort of on-screen relationship um, sort of changes in the in those four movies. But yeah, I think just from Casablanca and this, I would have to take Bergman and and Bogart as well. They're just so great together in that movie. Yeah, you can like really feel. Like it's like you can really feel like they like that he like loves her to the, like so much yeah. that he has to like let her go. Yeah. Oh my god. He's oh. 
they they're so good at just doing that sort of like it's almost like a star-crossed lovers sort of thing or, or maybe that's the wrong way to put it but just like them both being like they they want each other but they they can't do that oh it's it's great to watch in, in the movie should yeah, i get I agree. into some of the historical significance here of uh of this film so yeah, the movie is directed by howard hawks who's another uh, sort of old hollywood legend um some of his credits before this one that um are significant are his girl friday the um cary grant and rosalind russell talkie uh from 1940 uh and then after that of course um he directed To Have and Have Not, which was the first on-screen connection between Humphrey Bogart and Lauren McCall. And then eventually <laughs> they got married. Uh, short, It was either during the filming of this or shortly after. <laughs> so, you know, not, not insignificant to uh, mention that they met there. <laughs> well, did you read the piece of trivia that so they got married like right after the movie stopped filming, but then everyone had to come back like a year later to do some like to do some more scenes. And like Howard Hawks was like pissed that they got married, and he was like, "They better not be getting all mushy on set when they're together." Yeah, like it was interesting to read some of the trivia and see just like how mad he was about that. Yeah, he was furious. He was so mad. <laughs> it's like, dude, you're not involved. Yeah, it was. <laughs> no. Well, did he own? Okay, this is that's a tough word to use. Did he like own the rights to Lauren Bacall? Like, there was a whole thing about how like a studio owned her, but then they were like mad that she got married. It was she had a whole, and then she had this whole term. Tur- Tur- turbulent thing where like the movie that came out before this was like really really bad and they were like this better save her so that's why they highlighted I'm... her more like they were really making sure that she was I know that like of. back in that time it was a lot more normal for like an actor like the actors and the directors to sort of have like very strict contracts so he must have Howard Hawks must have like sort of helped her get her contract with I believe it was Warner Brothers and then he yep. apparently thought that that gave him the right to control their personal life too, which uh, uh, it does. <laughs> Come on, he's a man; he can do whatever he wants. Hurley, far be it for me to to <laughs> to say either way. So, and then the the writing doer that made this uh, film was also pretty significant. Um, so the writer originally attached to this was William Faulkner, who is best known as like a novelist. The, the novel I have the most familiarity with is As I Lay Dying, which I've never read, but that's the only one I've heard of. But not insignificant to mention that. Um, and then he was sort of struggling, so they brought in Lee Brackett, um, who is was also a short story writer that uh, Howard Hawks caught wind of. Um, and then she... This was her second uh, feature-length movie she wrote, and um, she went on to 
write two more Howard Hawks movies, Rio Bravo and Hitari. And then she also wrote The Long Goodbye, which is another Philip Marlowe movie, as I mentioned. And then um, I think everybody will know this one. She also wrote uh, Star Wars V, The Empire Strikes Back with Lawrence Kasdan. So, you know, a real heavyweight there. <laughs> and significantly, she was a woman as well. Um, so it's always good to see that too. I got nothing positive <laughs> to say about Star Wars. You better tread lightly, thing. man. <laughs> if anybody is listening to uh, this, I, I'm sure that it will just uh, enrage any Star Wars fan listening to this. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Jar Jar Binks was the best character. They under underutilized Jar Jar Binks. Heard here first and only here. So I think I was just going to say, let's be a uh, inflammatory podcast here, where we're just like, uh, you know, Anakin's the best, prequels were the best movies. I hate. (laughs) I hate Natalie Portman really shined in these movies. So, oh, yeah, I sorry. Love, I do love, I hate the, pre, the pre- I looked out there. Yeah, okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so I think just another thing I, I wanted to mention is just okay. this is like just a true blue noir classic, second, like really classic movie we've talked about here in two weeks. Um, and it contains just like a lot of the tropes that you'd see in a noir movie so it's a good place to sort of start for anybody that hasn't seen it out there because it's just sort of got that whole crime angle the dark lighting sort of like you know shafts of light or little pools of light but everything's not very well lit um doesn't always have to be a private detective but it you know in this case it is a private detective sort of bouncing between the police and, and criminals and then we have you know two really stand out like third fatales um, and Lauren Bacall as, as Mrs. Rutledge, and then um, I can't remember the actress's name, but also Carmen uh, Sternwood is also a really great from Patel as well. So it's just a great little like introduction to the genre, I think. Yeah, definitely had a lot. Yeah, I yeah I, yeah I had seen some noirs, but this felt like the most like. Yeah, exactly. Like, noir. I've been like, yeah, this watching a lot a of the ones that like Columbia did, and I was shocked at like how few of the little like conventions that they had in there. So then when I watched this one, I was like, "Oh, okay, here's where everybody." Yeah. Should we move on to our favorite scenes here? What uh, what were you? What were your favorite scenes? Ooh. I had let me scroll a little bit here. So my two favorite scenes, these were probably just because I just want to pick my two favorites here, were the scene where uh Lauren Bacall, Vivian Rutledge, and uh Humphrey Bogart's uh Marlowe are in the 
I don't know what it is. It's just like a it's like like a supper club. I, I think it was, it was a, a casino, casino, right? They were at a casino, and they were talking about like how they both liked racing horses, and they got all into a bunch of innuendos about horse racing in terms of them talking about like having sex with each other, and it was just like a ton of like very obvious innuendos that I guess flew under the radar of people who are trying to figure out what to rate this movie. <laughs> when they put it in theaters. But that's like a really famous scene that all the innuendos of the horse racing and the, I forget what they even said now. It was just a, it was stuff that was like uh like oh I like when they, they like come from behind like oh I'm like a I'm like a win- like I'm a winner. I like to finish first and it's funny. Oh no, I think he muted himself. Oh no.